Let us pray together. Dear Lord, with today's verse, you open the doors for us to a vast treasure trove, an army and an array of delightful, instructive, encouraging truths, glittering and bright with heaven's light. These truths are inexpressibly sweet to our soul. They lift you up, they cast us down, and yet they also catch us and bring us into your presence with unspeakable joy. Open our hearts to your word today, we pray. We need your spirit to do his ministry, to do his effectual, powerful ministry, to send his word home to our hearts with power, with the power of heaven, the power that alone will lift you up in our eyes and lift our hearts up in your praise. Thrill us as we glimpse our mighty Savior today. Be glorified in our grateful love and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few sermons have been kind of intense, I think you could say. Uh, a little like what we just read in First Timothy 1. Take a look again. Remind yourself in verses 8 and following. Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not set, not laid down for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, or more simply just homosexuals, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, there it is. He uses the law to show the purpose of the law. The law is not given to people who are righteous. It's given to people who are sinners. And so it must address our sin. It identifies our sin. And we have just been talking about some of the sins he mentions here. Murderers, he says, and we've been talking about the wrongful taking of the lives of the innocent unborn. And he says the sexually immoral and homosexuals. We've been talking about those who violate God's created order in their desires and in their practices. But I want you to notice now that Paul doesn't stop there. He lists those off, but then he immediately mentions the gospel in verse 11. Because that's where he's going. And then in verse 15, he, he bursts out with the verse with which we'll uh, occupy ourselves during this time. I've translated for you very literally so that uh, we can see some of his emphases. Faithful is the word and of all acceptance worthy that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save, such as he just listed off, sinners to save, of whom foremost am I myself. So we want to relish this verse for every reason, primarily my purpose in holding it out to you is uh, to glorify God and to excite you and me with greater love and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, greater exaltation of his mighty saving work, his glorious person. That's the primary purpose. But the secondary purpose, purpose I have is to remind all of us why we preach the law. When we preach the law, when we preach what sin is, why do we do that? If we do it just to show someone that he's lost, he's not saved, to leave him guilty and hopeless, and that's the end of it, we've not preached the gospel. And we've certainly not preached Paul's gospel. 
That's what I want us to say, see very clearly here today. We'll dig into this intense vein of priceless gospel sweets after some very intense sermons. This is just like a candy shop of, of wonderful delights. And we'll focus on three facets from this verse. The first thing I want you to notice with me is its reliability. The reliability of this word that Paul has for us, its reliability. What does he say? Faithful is the word and of all acceptance worthy. That's a very literal translation. I just want to stop right there. Faithful is the word and of all acceptance worthy. Now, what book did I find this in? This, this thing I just quoted, what book is that in? That's in First Timothy. What book is that in? It's in the New Testament. I know these sound like trick questions. They're so obvious. What book is the New Testament in? It's in the Bible. And what's the Bible? It's the Word of God. How much of this is true? Everything it affirms. Everything it affirms is true. Everything in this is faithful, meaning we can rely on it. We can trust in it. We can lean our full weight on it. Everything in it is worthy of full acceptance. And yet, Paul is about to say something that he especially says writing in a book filled with such sayings, he says, now, I just want to arrest your attention, I want to grasp your collar, and I want to get your eyes fixed on my eyes and tell you what I'm about to tell you is absolutely reliable, and it deserves our full embrace, our full acceptance. Well, and what's the effect of that? When you have somebody who knowingly writes with the authority of Jesus saying, I really want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Well, I I really need to listen to everything he says. But this one particularly, he says, listen to this. Believe this. Embrace this for all your worth. That's arresting, isn't it? Paul didn't have italics or bold print or underlines or, or certainly not red letter to emphasize anything. But boy, if he did, this would be it. He's saying what he's about to say is really something to listen to. That is remarkable. That is remarkable. But now notice how crucial, letter B, how crucial this statement is. When Paul says this, what does he indicate to us? When he, this is five times he does this, he talks about faithful sayings, and this is the first. And when he particularly stops to say, now listen, the word I'm about to give you is reliable, you can absolutely trust it, and it is worthy of unhesitant, wholehearted embrace, what does that tell us? It tells us that he expects some kind of resistance, right? It tells us, it signals, that what he's about to say is really something that there might be some inclination not to trust or not to embrace. Do you see? Or else why would he say that? You know, I mean, if I said to you, I'm going to tell you something really shocking. Water is very wet. You go, what? (laughs) What? There's nothing shocking about that. What what are you talking about? Uh, My son would correct me and say, it's not wet, it's liquid. But you know what I mean. Both are true. It's a liquid that makes you wet. And it's not shocking. But what Paul says, obviously, he thinks there's going to be some kind of resistance too. What kind of resistance? For various reasons. Well, for one thing, why did he tell Timothy to stay in Ephesus? False teachers. What did he tell Timothy to do? Command them not to teach other doctrine. May heterodidaskalane. Don't teach heterodoxy. Don't teach false doctrine. Don't do it. Those would resist this. They would resist it and gainsay it. Now, I want to tell you, and, you know, this could be a very long sermon, but, but there are two ways of resisting this teaching. One is obvious. 
the more obvious way is to say, well, look, I don't believe salvation is something Jesus just came and accomplished and gave. Obviously, we've got to contribute our part. Obviously, we've got to keep the law. Obviously, we've got, I mean, yes, maybe he wipes the slate clean when he saves us, but we've got to keep the slate clean from then on by our good behavior. Now, that, that is fairly obviously a rejection of what Paul says. And certainly, if, he, if we were to teach something like that, well, yes, Jesus did that, but someone greater came along, like Baha'u'llah or, or uh, Muhammad or Joseph Smith or whoever, well, then obviously that too is a, is a rejection of what Paul is saying. And that's obvious, but there are also more subtle rejections. And those are the ones that are, are dangerous, I think, and are more prevalent of people who in word would say, oh, yes, I absolutely believe this verse, and then they go on to make so many qualifications the, the, the verse stops being shocking. So obviously, there's something shocking about it, right? Or else he wouldn't say, brace yourself. I'm going to tell you something that you're going to kind of blow your mind, but you need to accept this. And then they end up qualifying it so much it's not so shocking at all. But what he says is going to be very shocking, and he's signaling that. But not only false teachers, the open and the subtle ones, but also there's going to be some people who are just so ridden with guilt, so, so timid, so unable to shake the memory of what they've done in their lives and, and uh, the shame and the, the stinging rebuke of their conscience, that they're going to find something like this very hard to accept, very hard really, really to trust and believe finally that Jesus has done what in fact Paul is about to say that he did do. They will find it too good to believe. False teachers will find it too wrong to believe, but these poor souls will just find it too good to believe, and as a result, they're going to want to wander in guilt and fear and minimum fruit, minimum service, minimum joy, because they don't believe and fully accept what Paul's about to say. So to both kinds, he says, what I'm about to say is absolutely reliable, and you've got to wrap your arms around it. If you find others around you opposing this doctrine, then you need to oppose them. If you meet people who don't believe this and believe something else, you need to correct them. But if you're that person, Paul is saying, well, then you need to exhort yourself. You need to correct yourself. You need to rebuke yourself. You need to encourage yourself. You need to rouse yourself and preach this over and over to yourself until you believe it and you embrace it. Are you with me? So it is, it is remarkable. It is crucial. Thirdly, you see how vital it is. How vital it is in contrast to the doctrine of the false teachers. Look back up at verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> he urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons, may heterodidaskalain, not to teach heterodoxy, not to teach false teaching, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Oh yes, charts, oh yes, graphs, oh yes, very impressive things, and not, not apostolic instruction, not the word of God. In contrast to that, he says, what I'm about to tell you is true and worthy of acceptance. What they teach is not. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. 
Paul warns against that, and he's left Timothy there for the express purpose of correcting them and rebuking them and making sure that their ministry does not continue. So this doctrine is in contrast, but also he's going to tell us in, in the next letter, 2 Timothy 4, turn there for a moment with me, please. He's going to tell us that, that not only is that the case with false teachers, but even people who now profess the truth will end up rejecting it. And we're seeing that a lot recently. It seems like a lot, of, a lot of people are shaking off their sheep coat and we're seeing the wolf underneath. But, but Paul speaks of those, uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he urges Timothy to preach the word. But look at verses 3 and 4. The reason why he needs to preach the word at all times is for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And listen, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's going to happen. So right now, it's very important. You listen to what I'm about to tell you, Paul says, because you can absolutely rely on it, and you need to wrap both arms around it and hold on for dear life. Why? Because false teachers will oppose it, and because even those professing the faith now, one day, will lose their taste for it and will wander off in search of something else. So for that reason, it is absolutely vital to get this, believe it, and embrace it. Cling to this truth no matter what, because tough times are coming, Paul says. So, it's reliability. We marvel at its reliability, how remarkable it is that he should say so, how crucial it is that we listen to this, and how vital it is that we hang on to it. The second thing I don't want us to miss is its historicity. <clears throat> Roman numeral two, it's historicity. What does Paul say? Faithful is the word and of all acceptance worthy that Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. We like the sinners to save part, but don't skip over the he came into the world, sinners to save. First, I want to highlight for you the uniqueness of this facet of Christianity, of biblical Christianity. How, uniqueness, how unique its historicity is. Just a few of, of a number of verses. Uh, I should have asked you to stay in 2 Timothy 4. I hope you did. But notice in 4.4, 4, he says that these people who will lose their taste for the truth will leave it and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, what's a myth? A myth is a story. A myth is a legend. A myth is a made-up uh, uh, maybe illustrative, maybe supposedly containing deep truths, but it's a story about something that actually never happened. So there, there is, in Paul's mind, a dichotomy here that you, if you leave the truth, you wander off into myths. Or, put another way, if you want to wander off into myths, you're going to be leaving the truth when you do it. And this will be the tendency of people to go off after stories and after, after made-up stories rather than staying with the truth. Now turn back to 1 Timothy 1 where we are, and I remind you that he told Timothy to stay in Ephesus specifically to command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine nor to pay attention to myths 
and endless genealogies. Now you see this all over the Old Testament period. There are just many, many books made up. We call them the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. Just absolute fabrications to fill in the gaps of things that we don't see in the Old Testament. People curious about Abraham's background or this or that. Or so, so people obligingly made up stories about the exploits of Abraham and Daniel and, and things that are not in the Old Testament. These, And haven't you seen this again and again, that people are less interested in what the Bible actually says and they get more interested in the white spaces between the lines and the margins, you know? They get fascinated with things the Bible doesn't expressly talk about. Because, you know, anybody can read what's in the Bible, but I'm bringing you something special. And they were bringing something special and, 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 and wandering off into these myths. But that was in opposition to apostolic teaching, which was uninterested in myths, which had its interest in the actual truths of God's word. Uh, listen to, uh, if you want to turn there, feel free, but 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Do note, note it down, obviously, but 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He makes an express point about this. <clears throat> For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ following cleverly devised myths. So he expressly says that when we preach Christ to you, these weren't the tales of Christ or the, the saga of Christ or the legend of Christ that we'd made up. He goes on to say, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So this is not a story meant to lift up Jesus. Never happened, but it's a lovely story. He's saying we stood on that dirt. We were on that elevation. And on that spot on this same globe, just a few rotations back, we heard God say this to Jesus. We were there when it happened. We saw. And that's what we're telling you about when we tell you about Jesus. Things just like that. There's, we don't have to make anything up. The reality is wonderful enough, and that's what we tell you, the reality. See, this is the unique nature of Christian, Christian faith. And I say Christian faith as stretching from Genesis to Revelation. That this alone is a faith based on and connected to actual real-world events. Then when we talk about redemption and say, well, what does redemption look like? We say, well, think of God saving Noah through the flood. Think of uh, God bringing Israel out of Egypt and defeating the gods and splitting the Red Sea. Oh, yes, those are wonderful legends about, oh, no, they're not legends at all. These are things God actually did. We understand these doctrines illustrated by things God did in history. And, and you know, I've just touch the tip of the iceberg in mentioning those things. That is a unique thing about everything else you talk about, every, every other competing worldview and philosophy and religion, it's just blah, 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 blah. It's just men just gassing, just talking, just moving their mouths, going around stories and thoughts and yarns. But Christian faith is not that. And so G, what Paul wants to talk about, this thing that he wants to focus our eyes on, is Christ Jesus came into the world. He doesn't say, faithful is the saying, worthy of all acceptance, that there's this lovely tale about how nice it would have been if Christ had come into the world. No, this is something that actually happened on a particular day of the week, on a particular point in the calendar. Jesus came into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. And so 
there have through the years been repeated attempts by false teachers to remove this element from Christian faith, but they've all failed. They, they keep coming up against the fact that the Bible doesn't say, okay, now we're going to leave off the stuff you can actually believe, and now we're going to tell you a story. So go get your jammies on, maybe get some cocoa, and this could be a lovely little yarn. No, the Bible, it's all woven together. And so we need to reject all of it, or we need to embrace all of it because the Bible is wrapped around historical realities and actual events. I'll talk about this more in just a moment, but uh, right now I just want to underscore that this is unique about Christian faith. It is about things accomplished and done on this globe, the same world that you and I live in. So let's now go on to talk about the importance of, of the historicity of this word. Letter B, the importance of it. What does he say? That this word is faithful and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. Now, listen to me, friends. If the saving mission of Jesus we're talking about was not a mission into this very world on this very planet, it's worthless. And don't waste your time on it. I'll show you exactly why. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. Point your eyeballs at verse 12. Romans 5, 12. What does the apostle say? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What did he say? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Who's that one man? Adam. That one man is Adam. What world is he talking about? Well, he's talking about this world or what he's saying is just more blah, 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 blah. You see, this verse is talking about where all our problems started. Our biggest problems. You say, no, no, no. My biggest problem is my spouse. No, it's not. My biggest problem is the cancer the doctor just told me about. No, it's not. My biggest problem is my job, the economy, President Biden, former President Trump, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, whatever. No, none of those things is your biggest problem. None of those things is my biggest problem. What is our biggest problem? Well, it's sin. All the things I just mentioned might be fruits of that, but the real problem is sin. And so the big question is, well, that's the question right there. <laughs> but how do you write that down? Well, uh, the big question is, why is there sin in this world? Did God make a bad world? And this is what people who don't understand Christianity say. Ha, ha, ha. You say God is good, but there's sin everywhere. Like, you know, okay, have you ever read the Bible? Because it does answer that question in so many words. But no. Well, it's a big question, though. If a good God made this world and we look everywhere and we see ruin and hatred and sin and disease, how did that happen? Well, if I answer the question by saying, well, let me tell you a little story. It's got animals and plants and fruit. It's about a, a, a handsome man and a pretty woman and, and a bad snake. And the snake tempted the woman and the woman believed and the husband followed her and they ate this fruit and that's when sin came in. You say, oh, okay. You say, so did that really happen? You say, oh, no, that never happened. But it's like that. And what do you say then? So how did it really happen? 
How did it happen? The, the, one of the most brilliant responses I, I read to this once, and it's, just, it's very subtle, so you've got to look closely at it. It was in an article about yet another you know, big-name international scholar who'd made this wonderful, liberating discovery that Adam wasn't a real person. Oh, nobody ever tried that before. But Adam wasn't a real person. It didn't matter whether Adam was a real person. It didn't really matter. Paul doesn't care. Well, actually, I think this fellow said, well, Paul thought, thought that there was an Adam, but Paul was wrong. And so there never really was an Adam. It's just a story. It's a myth meant to illustrate truth. And one person's comment on that was great. So I have a sin nature because of something some guy did in the story. That's brilliant, really. Because, well, I'm sure the man thinks he's saying something very deep. He's actually saying absolutely nothing at all. I'm still left with the question, how did sin enter the world? You've told me a story. You know, how did sin enter the world? Well, the Dark Lord made nine rings. Oh, wait, no, that's Lord of the Rings. That's Middle Earth. That, that's not how that happened at all, you know. Well, you see, it's when Voldemort came to Hogwarts. And, no, no, that's not how it happened either. Those are just stories. I still want to know how did sin come into the world? Well, Romans 5.12 tells us how sin came into the world. And it's very important that we believe that he means absolutely what he says in so many words, that one man, Adam, because then he's going to say in verse uh, 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So he's talking about the one man who stood as the head of humanity who brought sin in, And then he talks about the one man who stands as head of the elect, who brings life and righteousness to them. Now, if this man was not historical and doesn't matter, what does that mean about this man? Same thing. But to Paul's mind, they're both... And the value of talking about what this man did depends on and assumes understanding the literal reality of what this man did. So I say that to say this. If you're going to tell me about a salvation that doesn't involve coming into this world and doing something on this planet, it's worthless to me. Why? Because that's where sin is. That's where sin came in, and that's where sin reigns and rules now. And if, if you can't, like, again, if you, if you say, well, no, 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 I've got great news for you. Frodo and Sam took the ring to Mount Doom, and Gollum fell in, and it's, the ring's gone. That doesn't help me. That doesn't, that doesn't help me. And as I look in the mirror and I see my guilt and my sin, what does that have to do with that? And as I look ahead and I see my grave getting closer and closer, what does knowing about Frodo and Sam do for me? Or Harry Potter beating, beating Voldemort or, or Beowulf or any other legend you want to tell me? They, never, they didn't happen. It's this planet I'm living on and it's this planet I'm dying on. And it's this planet I see sin and ruin and hatred everywhere. So you've got to talk to me about something that brings salvation into this world. Oh, it's worthless to me. Stop wasting my time. But you see, that's exactly what Paul says. Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus, what? Came into the world sinners to save. He came into this world. Any salvation that is about myth and legend and fables is worthless or worse because it's a distraction. But now that's not what Paul is talking about. One of my great heroes of the faith is a man named J. Gresham Machen. He lived in the, he was born in the late 1800s, died in I think 1937. 
And he was one of the last of the old Princeton, when Princeton was still a Christian seminary. He left it and founded Westminster Seminary. He was a Presbyterian who was defrocked because he didn't want to give uh, missions money to people who wouldn't preach the gospel. Go figure. So the Presbyterians defrocked him, which is when I think they jumped the shark. He was a great man. He, he wrote one of the books that most affected me as a young Christian uh, called What is Faith? But I want to quote from another book he wrote. One of, the th- one of his most famous books was Christianity and Liberalism, which I'm also not going to quote from, but he was a great one for exposing that modernism and liberalism was not another form of Christianity. It was a different religion altogether. And that the gospel is something very different. Now I want to read you something that I just I find a wonderful uh, phrasing of what I'm trying to tell you about. He talks about those who want to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if anything in the Bible actually happened. The Bible's not about history or science. It doesn't matter whether these events happened. It doesn't really matter whether Jesus was born of a virgin or whether he literally died or literally was buried or literally rose from the dead. It doesn't matter if the Red Sea was literally parted or, or any of these things. And certainly the first chapters of Genesis, whether they literally happened, that doesn't matter. The Bible's not a book of history. It's a book of religion and religious values and ethics and morals. It tells us we should be nice and be good to each other and, and work hard. And it tells us the way that we should live and all that other stuff doesn't really matter. Well, Machen writes about them in a book called The Christian Faith in the Modern World. Very readable, very good book. And he asks these people who bring this gospel, that the Bible is not about history and not about real events and not real facts, that it's just ideas and religious ideals. He asks these people what good it does him to be told just to imitate biblical religion. And this is his answer. I will tell you, my friend, it does me not one tiniest little bit of good. You are just mocking me when you talk like that. You are ignoring my true condition. You are ignoring the fact that in my own right, I am a sinner under the wrath and curse of God, and that in my own strength, I am under the awful bondage of sin. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of the way God has saved me. Have you any good news for me? That is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me. But if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? And then he goes on to say, the Bible does tell me the facts. It tells me that Jesus died on the cross to save me. It tells me that he rose from the dead to complete his saving work and be my living Lord. What do I say when it tells me this? Do I say, that is history and not religion. I'm not interested in it. It may be true or it may not be true for all I care. The Bible is a book of religion, not a book of science or a book of history. No, my friends, I do not say that. I say rather, praise be to God for that blessed story of the resurrection and the cross. Upon the truth of it, all my hope depends for time and for eternity. How I rejoice that God himself has told me in his holy book that it is true. Then he closes this portion with, here's a rule for you, my friends. No facts, no good news. No good news, no hope. The Bible is quite useless unless it is a record of facts. 
And that's Paul's insistence. The heart of what he wants to talk about and wants us to accept and embrace is a historical event when Christ Jesus came into this world on a mission. So secondly, the historicity, and now finally third, its efficacy. Its efficacy, E-F-F-I-C-A-C-Y. In other words, that it is effective, it's efficacious, it actually does what it seeks to do. Its efficacy. Reliability, its historicity, its efficacy. Efficacy first because of, first and primarily, because of who it hinges on. Because of who it hinges on, letter A. Because of who it hinges on. Now imagine Paul had said, faithful is the word and of all acceptance worthy that Moses came to the world sinners to save. Or that Isaiah came into the world or that King David came into the world, or Solomon came into the world, or that Augustine came into the world, Paul came into the world, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards came into the world, sinners to save. Suppose he'd say that. Could any other name fit here? Not at all. Not remotely. Not even close. Why? Not because of nature and not because of fitness. None of these people came into the world. What do I mean? None of them existed before they were in the world. They were born in the world. They didn't come from outside the world. They're all of the world. So for for nature, you couldn't say it of any other human being. You couldn't say it of fitness either. Because Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. Could any of the men I just listed save sinners? Why not? They're all sinners. They all have the same problem. They can't save others from it. So, let's focus then who it hinges on and focus first on his name. His name. Who does Paul say came into the world? Well, he says Christ Jesus. He's not just filling space. He says that name for a purpose. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not his first name. It's a title. What does it mean? It means anointed. It's the same word as Messiah. Messiah, Mashiach is the Hebrew word. Christos, Christ is the Greek word. Both mean anointed. So I've said that. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, three officers were anointed to their office. Prophets were often anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. In each case, the pouring on of oil signified the coming of the Holy Spirit to equip the person to do that office. But uh, a king could not be a priest. He was of the wrong tribe. And and you would not see one who was prophet and priest and king. But this one who was prophesied in the Old Testament would be prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah would be prophet, priest, and king. He would be the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses, to whom all Israel must listen or God would require it of them would seek judgment of them. He would be the prophet speaking the words of God. And so we certainly do see Jesus, although more than a prophet, don't we? Because what do the prophets commonly say? Thus says the Lord. What does Jesus commonly say? Amen, I say to you. And then he speaks God's words. So he's the prophet. He's the, the priest 
He's not a Levitical priest. He's not an Aaronic priest. What line is he of in his priesthood? Melchizedek. Psalm 110, I have anointed you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Messiah would be the the priest, and what would he do as priest? He would offer a perfect sacrifice for his people's sins to accomplish their atonement. He would be prophet, priest, and he would be king. Not a king like David, not a king like Solomon, who had great and glorious kingdoms, but who also sinned badly and did not rule over the whole planet. But he would never sin, and he will rule over the whole planet. He would be prophet, priest, and king. What, what a celebrity, what a person is coming into the world here. Christ, oh, but he doesn't just call him Christ, does he? What else does he call him? Christ, Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Savior, salvation. It does not mean one needing salvation. It means one bringing salvation. Jesus did not need to be saved from his sins. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, without sin, fully human, fully like us, except for sin. So he could come and he could accomplish salvation. He could bestow salvation. There had been other Jesuses. There had been other Joshuas. But what they all had in common is they all needed saving. But here came one. What does the angel say in Matthew 1? I think verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus because what? He will save his people from their sins. He would come bringing salvation. This is the one who came into the world. He is the Savior. So his name holds out why he's the only one of whom Paul could say this, that Christ Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, bringing salvation, came into the world. So now I want to talk about his nature. I've talked about his name. Let's talk about his nature. He came into the world. And what this suggests is that he was not in the world, but came into the world. He was not naturally born. And what does this mean? Well, we spent some time in Philippians 2 talking about what this means. And what do we see there? Who, though existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking on the likeness of human flesh, humbling himself to the point of being a slave, dying on the cross. But before that incarnation, he existed in the form of God. Or as John's gospel says, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you've got to wait till verse 14 to see, and the Word became flesh. But he became flesh from all eternity. He was simply God. There was not a speck of humanity to him. Sheer deity. But at the incarnation, he took on himself a fully human nature. So he comes into the world from outside the world. And doesn't this make sense? The salvation of this fallen, sinful world, on the one hand, it needs to take place in the arena of the world, but it's not going to come up from the world, is it? Why not? Because all the world is, is bound. It's all enslaved. Even nature itself is enslaved to the effects of sin. And all the people in it are enslaved to sin and sin's baleful, deadly fruit. So the salvation, if there's to be any, it needs to happen in this world. can't happen in Middle Earth or Lemuria or any other place you care to name. It has to happen in this world. But it's not going to be provided by this world. It's got to come from heaven. And indeed, that's exactly what Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into 
the world. So this precious word is efficacious because of who it hinges on. If it was anyone else who came to save, if we'd never read this and we were just hoping for something that we could cling to to give us hope of salvation, and Paul said, great news, Rabbi Gamaliel came into the world. We just say, there's no answer there. There's no hope for me there. That's not going to save me. But it's not. It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Otherwise, an empty, vain hope. And so, because our hope rests on Christ Jesus, there literally cannot be a better hope. And I try to use the word literally only literally. There literally can't be a better hope than a hope that rests on Christ Jesus. So it is efficacious because of who it hinges on, and secondly, because of what he came to do. What did he come to do? He came into the world sinners to save. Pardon me. Because of what he came to do, he came into the world sinners to save. Now, notice emphatically, first of all, what Christ Jesus did not come to do. It's very important that we see what he did not come to do. What did he not come to do? Well, he didn't come the righteous to congratulate. He said, great job, keep it up, I got your back. And he didn't come the religious to flatter. (laughs) You can certainly say that safely. Because remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, to which, by the way, I intend to return in two weeks, Lord willing, um, but... What was his first pre first sermon? What 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 was his, what were the first words out of his mouth when he preached? Great job, you know. Thanks for taking care of everything. I can I can see that hundreds of years of the law has done its work. Everybody's godly and righteous and humble and loves God and loves each other. And is that what Jesus said? What's his first word? Repent. So uh, you know what is one word that says you've absolutely messed everything up totally and you need to tear it all down and start all over? Repent. And that's Jesus' first word. So no, he didn't come the righteous to congratulate. He didn't come the religious to flatter. I also want you to see that he didn't come self-lovers to affirm. He didn't come to say, you know, you're fine just the way you are. I accept you just the way you are. Whatever it is, the dreams of your heart, follow your heart, and I'll sign the check. I got your back. Just have your best life now, and I'll, I'll, I'll clean up after you. You're fine. You're fine. This is not what Jesus said. Repent, again, is pretty much the opposite of that. But also notice that Paul does not say that Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to teach, or sinners to exhort, or sinners to judge or condemn, or even sinners to help. He didn't come to help them. Because they're trying very hard, but they need his help closing the deal, and he came to do that, you know? They've got to get here. They've gone this far. He came to close that gap. You know, that, so we can be saved by grace after all that we've done. No, that's not what he came to do. He didn't come as sinners to teach or help or exhort. And I want you to notice something else very emphatically. And, and I, I'm sure that I've preached this and people have heard me and said, yes, I totally believe in that. Yet they've been brought up with a teaching that denies what I'm about to say, and they don't even know it, with the best of intention, the best of hearts. But I want you to notice that Paul does not say that Christ came to try to save sinners. And I am so grateful for that. I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am 
that Paul does not say that Jesus Christ came to try to save sinners, to do everything necessary for salvation except for one little bit which was left to them. Well, I'll tell you what, if one little bit were left to me, I'd be lost. I would be lost because I'm a sinner and I hate God and I can't submit myself to his law. That's what Paul says. If you learn that, that's what Paul says. That's what the Bible says. Sin has ruined me. And you leave any part to me? You know, one of my children, with the, I'm not saying this to tell the child, but I just remember clearly I, I handed a Bible to read something, and the first thing the child did was tear the page. Well, I should have known better. You know, it was one of these fine page Bibles and so forth. But that just kind of stuck in my mind is, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do, you know. The first hand's okay, you only have to do this one part. Rip. And that's what it would be if he left a part to us. He didn't come to try to save sinners. He didn't come to offer salvation to sinners. He didn't come to make sinners savable. He came, what? To save sinners. That's what Paul says. So having noted emphatically what Paul does not say Christ came to do, now please cherish with me what Paul says Christ did come to do. What does he say? Sinners to save. Now I translated that awkwardly, literally, just so you see. This is, like I say, Paul doesn't have italics or underlining. And and one of the ways that he can make an emphasis is by word order in Greek syntax. And so he takes that word sinners, which would normally go at the end, and he puts it in front He came to save, yes. Who did he come to save? Oh, Paul wants us to see this right up front. Sinners. Not really hard, almost there, trying people. Sinners. He came to save sinners. Sinners is who he came to save. So, uh, in approaching this and and trying to help us see what Paul is saying here, suppose an analogy. Suppose that I say to you, you know what? Um, Valerie and I want to take you out to dinner. So tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, we're going to take you out to dinner. And you say, okay, well, and I name it, oh, let's, let's make it, you know, salt grass. I'm going to take you out to salt grass. I'm not offering this to anybody, by the way. But I'm going to, I just want to make it big. Uh, I'm going to take you out to salt grass. And so you say, oh, okay, well, will you bring your car? Yes, yeah, right, we'll bring the car because I'm going to take you to salt grass. Oh, will you back it out of my driveway? Yes. Will you let me get into it first? Yes, I'll make sure you do. Will you drive down my street? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Will you stop at the red lights? Yes. Will you drive across the streets that take us to Saltgrass? I'll do that. How about in the parking lot? Okay, let me stop you right there. What did I promise to do? Take you to Saltgrass. When I get there, will I be able to eat anything? What did I promise to do? take you to dinner at Saltgrass. So that involves everything from getting you to your house to sitting you at a table and having you eat yummy food. Right? You following me? What does Paul say? He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh, well then will he make atonement for my sins? Well, yes, or else he would not save sinners. Will he make atonement for all my sins? Well, yes. He won't save sinners. But even the ones that I commit after conversion, well, yes, or he would not save sinners. Even the big ones? Yes, then he wouldn't save sinners. Well, what about my need to be perfectly righteous in God's eyes? Will he fulfill righteousness for me? Yes, because that's part of saving sinners. He will fulfill all righteousness. 
Well, will he take all my sins on himself so that I don't bear them anymore? Yes, because that's what it means to save sinners. Will he fully atone for them so that they are gone, blotted out, wiped out, never to be brought up again? Yes, otherwise he could not save sinners. God is furious at me for my sins. I know I deserve God's wrath. I feel that in my very bones. Will he satisfy God's wrath and justice that I deserve for my sins? Yes, he will. Otherwise, he could not save sinners. Jesus will do all those things. Will he deliver me from all the power of the devil? Yes, because otherwise he couldn't save sinners. Will he preserve me to his heavenly kingdom all the way? Well, yes, or else he isn't saving sinners. He's trying to save, half-saving But that's not this word Paul tells us to accept. This word says, save sinners. He came to do everything that is necessary to get his people from hell to heaven. To get them from under the wrath of God into the family and kingdom of God. That's what he came to do, to save sinners. Okay, well, so will he... Bring me to repentance and saving faith. Because I know the scripture says I hate God and I'm dead. And I can't submit to the law of God. Well, I'll tell you what. If he did everything but that, then he would have saved no sinners. If he only made a theoretical salvation and offered it to you, dependent on you doing your part, then he would not have saved sinners. If the reason why this man goes to hell and this man goes to heaven is because he did his part and he didn't, it's not Christ who saved sinners. Oh, we couldn't have done it without him, but you have to say also, you can't do it without us. And that's not what I read here. He came to save sinners. If he left to me the one thing that is necessary for me actually to be saved and hands off, then he didn't come to save sinners. He came maybe to give an opportunity to sinners to save themselves. But he did not come to save sinners. Now this is something you see again and again in the writing of the apostles, that Christ actually accomplished atonement, redemption, salvation by his work on the cross. He actually did. And so, everything necessary to my being saved was also accomplished on the cross including assuring that the Holy Spirit would come and breathe life into me, convict me of sin, open my eyes to Christ, and lead me to saving faith. All of that he accomplished on the cross because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of course, Spurgeon says it best, so I'll quote him. He's actually preaching on the verse in Isaiah 63 that Yahweh is mighty to save, but he gets into the same area. And he says, by the words to save, I do not understand what some men say they mean. They tell us in their theology books that Christ came into the world to put all men into a salvable state, to make the salvation of all men possible by their own exertions. I believe that Christ came for no such thing that he came into the world not to put men into a salvable state, but into a saved state. Not to put them where they could save themselves, but to do the work in them and for them, from the first even to the last. If I believe that Christ came only to put you, my hearers, and myself into a state where we might save ourselves, I should give up preaching henceforth, forever. 
For knowing a little of the wickedness of men's heart, because I know something of my own, knowing how much men naturally hate the religion of Christ, I should despair of ever having any success in preaching a gospel which I had only to offer its its effects depending upon the voluntary acceptance of it by unrenewed and unregenerate men. If I did not believe that there was a a might going forth with the word of Jesus, which makes them willing in the day of his power, and which turns them from the error of their ways by the mighty, overwhelming, constraining force of a divine and mysterious influence, I should cease to glory in the cross of Christ. Christ, we repeat, is mighty, not merely to put men into a salvable condition, but mighty absolutely and entirely to save them. Amen? That's what Paul says. And finally, relish the focus again that I mentioned and I I return to sinners to save. If he came to the world, sinners to save. I tell you what, to to the yearning, guilty, desperate sinner, could there be sweeter words than to be able to say to such one as I'm able to say to such a one, as one was able to say to me, you're exactly the sort of person Jesus came to save. Say, oh, but I'm so evil. Jesus came to save evil people. Oh, but I've sinned. You don't know how I've sinned. I don't need to know how you've sinned. I know Jesus came to save sinners. You're telling me you're a sinner? You're telling me you're exactly the sort of person he came to save. And I can assure you, you trust in him and you will find yourself fully saved entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, sinners to save. Now I, now I need to say on the other hand, if you say, I guess that's great, but it does nothing to me emotionally. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you and you seem real excited about this, but I got to tell you, it's not doing anything for me. Th- then I would ask you in all sincerity and friendliness, do you know that you're a sinner? And do you know what that means? Have you felt the deadly power and grasp of sin on your heart? Have you gone with Isaiah into the presence of of God and seen his blinding white holiness, such holiness that even the sinless angels cover their face in his presence. Have you seen that holiness and seen yourself in that light and known the fury due for sin, the judgment and wrath deserved by sin and seen yourself there? I can't imagine that you have and then would hear these words and not just hear them as the best words you've ever heard in your life. Because to such a person they are. But you've got to know that you need saving. And that's why the gospel falls on dead ears. People don't think they need saving. But I'll tell you what, we all do. And it's the best thing to know that Jesus came to the world, sinners to save. So, uh, because of the person on whom it hinges, because of the efficacy of his work, and finally, letter C, because of the prime example. Paul has an example you know, there was a commercial, I think, years ago. Was it the hair club for men? Where the guy said, I'm not only o- the owner, I'm a customer. Because <laughs> he wore a toupee or whatever it was. Well, that's what Paul can say about his gospel. I don't just preach it. It's my life. It's everything to me. It's not just my theme song. It's my everything. Because he says, of whom foremost am I myself. Again, very, very emphatic syntax. Sinners to save, of whom foremost am I myself. Now, I want to note every word of that with you, beginning with the present tense. Does that shock you? 
It would have been nice. I mean, it would have been fine to just for that he would read, he came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was foremost. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, of whom foremost am I? Well, because think if he had said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom foremost was I? What might some of us think looking at that? We might think, oh, yes, I see. <coughs> Paul was a great sinner, but Christ saved him, and then after that, he, he never sinned anymore. He never did anything foolish. He ne- never did anything bad. And that's not me. This doesn't comfort me because I profess faith, and some of the things that make me cringe the worst, I did after my conversion, not before my conversion. Maybe sometimes because we were saved when we were 10. We hardly had a chance to do much, maybe. But maybe not. Whatever the reason, we look back and we don't see a spotless record after our conversion. We don't see uh, perfect wisdom and, and holiness. We see folly and selfishness and idiot mistakes. So we like to go back and brain ourselves before we've done them. But alas, we can't. And so they're in our memory. Well, brother, sister, Paul says, among whom I am foremost. He never lost consciousness of the fact that he will always be a saved sinner. Saved, yes, but a saved sinner. Uh, He never forgets verse 13, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, and now he says still, I am the chief of sinners. I am first of sinners. I am foremost in sinners. And, and that's a ranking there, by the way. It's not chronological. He's not the first sinner Christ saved. But he sees a pack of sinners, and he sees one guy leading the pack. Who is that? Why, that's my face, Paul says. That's my face. Still. But Christ came to save such as I. So you, you hear this gospel of mine, and you wonder, could this ever apply to me? And I tell you, I know it can because it saved the leader of the pack of sinners. And he's the one testifying to you. And then read the next verse, if you're in 1 Timothy 1. And if you're not, it's worth going. Read the next verse. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. So he's talking about part of God's design, what God made out of saving him, what what use God put him to. And he was shown mercy, which is something you show to someone who's miserable. And he'd said that earlier. He was miserable. He was lost. He was without hope. God showed him mercy. But look, so that in me as the foremost, there's that word again, the first, Christ Jesus, the same person who came to save, might demonstrate all his patience as an example. What, did you never notice that before? What does it mean to say patience? Is he saying patience before I was saved? Well, that's not even worth saying. The fact that God didn't destroy him out of hand, that's not even worth saying. He's not talking about patience before he was saved. He's talking about patience the whole way, from birth to salvation to glory. He says that Paul is still, I'm sorry, God is still showing him patience. Christ Jesus is demonstrating in him his patience. That means that he still needs patience. He still needs mercy. He still needs the application of Christ's saving work. He needs to, it wouldn't have done him any good if Jesus had just saved him and then left him to get the rest of the way on his own. 
you know, to go back to my little silly example, take you into my car and say, all right, we're going to salt, uh, salt grass. You say, fantastic. I say, now get out and get there. Well, what? You said you were going to take me there. And that's right. And Jesus saves us. As Hebrews says, he saves us to the uttermost. And so to do that, yes, he needs to continue to show us patience. And he showed Paul patience. And why does Paul tell us that? To tease us because we won't have that same patience that Jesus had? No, what does he exactly say? To demonstrate all his patience as an example. I tell you, as I'm in my, what, fifth decade of being a Christian or something, that's one of the things that looms biggest to me. God's patience with me. God's long-suffering. And Paul says, yeah, me too. In fact, I'm the exemplar of that. And so, when we see that the reason Christ showed patience to Paul, that gives us hope. That we're just the sort of sinner that Christ Jesus came to save. Because Paul was the first of those. And he was an example of patience. So, in closing, how does this unutterably sweet precious word leave you feeling, I would ask you. What, what does this do for you? The best and truest response, I think, would be to be ravished by it, just to be dazzled, to be thrilled, humbled, filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with gratitude to the point where we just can scarcely believe that something so good could be true. And if that's the case, then I remind you, the first thing he says is, faithful is the saying, and worthy of all acceptance. It is true. The reason why it's good news is because it's true news. Faithful is the word, and of all acceptance worthy. So as we hear that, as the hymn says, we can, we must, we will believe in this word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great and wonderful truth. Oh, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would send it, send it home to a heart today, here among us, somebody burdened with guilt, a believer but scarcely able to believe in Christ's salvation, that that person will look full on Jesus and forever be done with doubting Christ's ability to save and his efficacy and his competence and his faithfulness as a Savior. And lead that person utterly to rejoice and utterly to rely and utterly to trust in Jesus' word of promise and your goodness and your patience. Pray for those who don't know Jesus and have come in, maybe religious posers, religious game players who've come to see, I don't really have a part of that. Father, bring such a one to repent and to lay hold of Jesus by genuine living faith and to be transformed by your saving grace. And we pray too as the word goes out through the internet that you will find those to whom uh, this is a welcome word of good news and gospel. Lead them fully to embrace the truth in Christ and know what it means to be one of Jesus' trophies of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.